As uh, Rich said, my name is Matt, one of the leaders here at Liberty Church. Uh, it's great to have you all with us, particularly if you've walked in here for the, for the first time, uh, you're new to this family, then we really f- hope that you feel at home amongst us. If you have any questions about anything that happens here, please feel free to ask us. We want you to uh, be a very welcome guest here today with us. Uh, what we tend to do here every week at Liberty Church is uh, look at a passage of the Bible together, so we're going to do that today. So if you have a Bible with you, if you want to turn to the book of Revelation, which is the last book in the Bible, so turn right to the back. Uh, we're working through a little short series looking at uh, seven letters that Jesus wrote to seven churches, which you can read about in Revelation 2 and 3. And we're on the third of those today. So I'm going to read from verse 12 to verse 17 of chapter 2. Hopefully the words will appear as if by magic on the screen behind me as we read along. It says this, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I'll give some of the hidden manna, and I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this book your word we thank you for this letter that you wrote Jesus and we just pray that in the same way this little church would have received it and read it and heard it and applied to their lives I pray today that we would hear what you have to say to us that we would hear your voice speaking to us here today in this city that we know your spirit leading us and guiding us we thank you that we can confidently proclaim that you're here this morning and that you want to speak to us you want to meet with us and we pray that would happen right now as we look at your word together Jesus name Amen I had the privilege last week of getting on a plane, not done that in a while, and I flew to 
Krakow in Poland. Has anyone here ever been to Poland? Oh, a few of you, great. There's only one at the earlier service, which is Michiel, who's here again. <laughs> so Michiel's been twice, there we go. Uh, I went to Krakow in Poland, which uh, used to be the capital of Poland and is still a very beautiful, stunning city uh, in the south of the country. Uh, I went to visit some friends of mine who were starting a new church there. Uh, they moved there about two or three months before the COVID pandemic. Um, just them, um, one of their sons, and they didn't know anyone in the city. Um, now, remarkably, they have a little church of about 12, 15 people, which is quite remarkable seeing, you know, they've not actually been allowed to meet together for quite a long time, but uh, they've really seen God's favor on them, and it was great just to go and uh, be amongst them for a few days. And on one of the days I was there, uh, Yanush, who is my friend who's leading the church there, he took me on a little tour of the city of, of Krakow. And uh, we, right in the center of the city, I don't know if you might know if you've been there, there's a, there's a river that runs through the city and a huge castle on top of a kind of a mound, as castles tend to be, overlooking the river and overlooking the city. It's a, a really impressive structure that kind of dominates the whole, the whole horizon. And uh, we walked up this kind of long, steep, winding path to get into the castle. There were lots of other tourists kind of walking up as well. And as you go in through these kind of massive gates, in the center there's a huge courtyard. But to our surprise, what was taking place in the middle of this courtyard was, a, was a, quite an official ceremony with the president of Poland there. I can't remember his name, but... Yanush was quite excited because it's not often you get to meet your political leaders. And there he was, the president of Poland. And he was giving, uh, there was a, a presentation of a flag to an army brigade. Obviously, if you're in the army, you are, you're there to serve your country. And you'll follow the flag into, into battle. That's kind of your emblem, your idol that you, you go after. So it was quite an official ceremony taking place with this army brigade and it was really it was like when you see those things on TV in you know in Red Square in in Russia or in the center of Beijing where they do a massive kind of military parade and it's a display of power and that's kind of what was taking place it was this I felt quite it was quite a daunting I, I felt quite vulnerable being there because it wasn't just this army brigade and the president but there was also there was more army people protecting the army and then there was police as well wandering around I don't know who they were protecting and then there was the president had his own like security guys you know big black suits like the biggest people you could find um, like Goliaths wearing black suits and little earpieces in who I made the mistake of engaging one of them in eye contact and then immediately regretted it he gave me that kind of look where you think oh my word it's kind of pierced my soul it's like the only person I know who can give a look like that is my mum my mum and this Polish security guy. But it, what it was was this display of power. You know, we're the army and we are going to follow this flag. Everyone, we want everyone here to know it. To sort of feel the weight, the power of it. And it, what struck me about it was how unusual it was. It's, we don't often have those kind of pay, uh, displays of power in our society. And often we, we're always trying to bring authority down. We're trying to undermine it. We don't tend to engage in those sort of displays. 
But for this little church in this city here that we're reading this letter to, they would have been aware all the time of uh, a similar dynamic happening in their city. Pergamon was a, would have been a sort of center of idolatry in the world at the time. There would have been a statue to the Roman emperor Augustus and Rome was sort of the leading military power at the time and the Roman Caesars, they weren't just political leaders, they, they were gods, kings to be worshipped, to be adored and people would go to this statue of Augustus and would worship. There was also there was an altar to Zeus, it's now in a museum in Berlin, you can go and see it. There were all sorts of other idols and statues. There was a hill overlooking the city where people would go to all sorts of different idols and offer incense and sacrifices. And to live in that city, you were constantly having to navigate through this world of idolatry, knowing which idols you had to pay respect to, which you had to bow down to, even to get, even to get work, even to get provision, even to do your regular life. You were constantly having to submit to idols again and again. It's a world that we're not very familiar with, but would have been a real struggle for this little church to know, well, whose who's throne do we go to? Whose sword do we follow into battle? Whose flag, which idol will we, do we bow down to? For the, another city at the time in Thessalonica, you can read about their story. We were talking about it earlier this year about how that little church in the city of Thessalonica started. But there's a story in Acts 17 which tells the story there of how this little church erupted in this city. And the claim that was made against them was that they worshipped another king, Jesus. They didn't worship Caesar or any other gods or idols. They worshipped another king. And that was the challenge for this little church. Which king were they going to bow down to? Now we get to look back from our point in human history and know that worshipping Jesus worked out pretty well because he's still alive and the Roman Caesars are not. The Roman Empire is no more. If you look back over the course of human history, you see again and again that great empires, great powers emerge. The Egyptians, the Greeks and the Romans and then they fade away. They diminish, they lose their power and Jesus remains. So we can look back and think, well, it's obvious who they should worship. Worship Jesus. And if you're a Christian here, that's the obvious answer you'd come up with. And this story might seem, everything I'm saying might seem a little bit irrelevant, a little bit redundant. But what this book of Revelation is doing, it's writing a letter to this church in this time to encourage them but also we can find encouragement here as well because what this book is doing, it's, it's pulling back the curtain. It's giving us a different perspective. It's trying to wake us up and I want you to wake up today to a different story that's taking place all around us. That we don't have altars and statues and idols to go and bow down to in our city, but idolatry is very real all around us. We might not be aware of Satan's throne as Jesus writes to this church, but he's, the devil is very much at work in our city. 
He's very much at work against us, against the church, trying to undermine the church, trying to destroy and harm the church. When you pull back the curtain, that's what you find taking place. And the enemy, the devil, Satan, however we want to refer to him, who will use idolatry just as they used here, it works out in our lives today as well. And here in this story, there's a, there's a victim. We read about Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. He was martyred for, for his faith. Most likely, he probably refused to bow down to an idol, refused to worship one of the pagan gods, so he was murdered for what he believed. And although for us that might not be a reality we have to face, through history, I think it's something like one in 200 Christians has been martyred for, for what they believe. It, even just in the last 10 years, 900,000 Christians have been martyred. Amazing. Now that's not a challenge we're probably gonna face here in our city. Maybe some of you, the countries you come from, maybe that is a real threat that you might have to walk or your friends or family might have had to have experience and this letter to people like that to people in some places around the world even today this letter comes as an enormous encouragement to them enormous relief to them we must pray for our brothers and sisters in all sorts of countries facing these threats but the question for us this morning is well what what's our what's our battle. Jesus commends them for holding fast. Even though they've seen one of their friends killed for what they believe, he commends them for holding fast. Now where, where do we have to do that? Where's the battle for us? Where do we need to hold fast? It might not be that we have to bow down to an idol or a statue, a flag or a sword, but what does it look like? You see, because as I said, the devil's very much at work and the way he tends to do it in our lives today in a city like this is in schemes, and plans and deceptions. He tries to trick us. Says John Calvin, the reformer said, there is nothing that Satan so much endeavors to accomplish as to bring on mists with the view of obscuring Christ. Like a mist, a, a cloud, a, a fog, to just distract us from Jesus. That's what the devil's doing all the time, just to draw our gaze off of Jesus Christ and onto something else instead. That's essentially what idolatry is. It's misplaced worship rather than choosing to worship Jesus, our gaze has gone somewhere else. We suddenly find ourselves intoxicated, worshiping something else instead. A mist descends. We get drawn away from who Jesus is. And the example Jesus uses to help them is he talks about the teaching of Balaam, which is a story from the book of Numbers. You can read it towards the beginning of your Bible. And it's a wonderful little story. You can read about it from chapter 22 to 25 of the book of Numbers. You have this king, 
of the Moabites, Balak. And he goes to Balaam, and Balaam is, he's like a, he's not very nice. He's like a kind of occult prophet. And he goes to Balaam and, and asks him to curse the Israelites. Because Balak is afraid that they're going to wipe him out. So he says, Balaam, will you curse them? Because that's what Balaam does. He curses people. And yet the story is fascinating. And we'll come on to it a little bit later in the message. Because his, his power is restrained. He can't do it. He's not able to. He's not able to bring the curse that Balak wants him to do. Balak gets frustrated with him. But what he does do, and what Jesus is referring to here, is he brings a kind of a devious deception. He works a treachery. He, he draws the people of Israel away from their God and leads them into all sorts of false worship and idolatry. And again, that's often how the devil will work. He won't, in a city like this, he's not necessarily going to come and martyr people. He's not going to just suddenly take out a whole bunch of Christians. In a sense, he'd rather just deceive us, to trick us, to draw us away from Jesus. And the, this is what happens is in this church in Pergamum, that some of them have been drawn away. And it talks about that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Now what this is, again, it might be difficult for us to understand here. Eating food, sacrificed to idols, it's not something that I've ever had to deal with. But you see, what these two, two examples they're speaking to is, in a sense, some of the most primal needs of our life. And that's what idolatry does today. It will speak into them the most primal needs of your life and offer you another solution. So where so often we need provision. We might not eat food sacrificed to an idol, but there'll be all sorts of other ways that we'll try and find our provision. We'll try and find our needs met in things other than Jesus. The most obvious example would be with our money, with our finances. That money, although it can be a wonderful gift, very easily becomes a god. It becomes an idol that can dominate us, that can consume, can overwhelm, can destroy you. And the, the most harmful thing it will do is it will work like this. It will be a mist that will just obscure your view of Jesus rather than trusting in Jesus you'll trust in money if I could just have some more if I could just get X amount if my salary was this then life would be great but what happens is you, you get to that point and you discover that you want more because that's what idolatry does again and again it makes promises that it can't keep all the time it calls you into something and then it doesn't deliver. It leaves you wanting more, needing more, again and again and again. Idols offer provision, they offer, they offer intimacy as well. When it talks here about that they've, 
ate food sacrificed to idols and practiced sexual immorality. But the heart of sexual immorality in the human heart is really the desire for intimacy. Because we're made to be intimate. We are. And sex is a wonderful gift that God's given us to enjoy intimacy with, with a husband or wife in marriage. It's a wonderful gift in that context. And most powerfully, what it's supposed to display is the intimacy we get to have with Jesus. It's a, a picture, just this mirror of greater intimacy that's offered. But again, it's a good thing that becomes a God thing. All the time, we're faced with this God in our city. We don't have a statue of Augustus or Zeus or anyone else. Why would the devil need to use such a tactic when he can use sex again and again and again to assault our hearts, to call us away from Jesus? And ultimately within that is the desire to find intimacy that the human heart runs after again and again. And I'm sure what many of you have discovered is that it doesn't fulfill. It doesn't. It will leave you wanting more and needing more. And it will ultimately it will corrupt and harm. You see, because although these idols offer provision, they offer intimacy, and although the tactics of the devil here might seem sort of subtle and devious, and although they might be subtle, it doesn't mean they're not vicious. And they can be really vicious. In the book of Corinthians, Paul writes about what happens to the Israelites, of how they're deceived by Balaam, of how when they're in the wilderness, idolatry comes to overthrow them. There he talks about the sat Satan as the destroyer who destroys. That's what he wants to do. He wants to destroy you, us, the church, the people of God. We're, we're an enemy in his territory that he wants to wipe out. And we have to be on our guard that there's so much around us that will offer us so much and deliver so little. In the book of Jude, it describes this kind of false teaching as, it's like a waterless cloud. Think of that. If you're a if you're a, a farmer in the middle of a boiling hot summer and you need rain and you see a cloud coming, you delight. And that's so often what we feel like, yes, there's the answer. But there's no water. There's a waterless cloud in front of so many of us. Just idols in our life, offering us so much and delivering so little. And yet Jesus, he both commends this church for holding fast and warns them that some of them are falling astray. 
And the question for us is, well, how do we, how do we hold fast? How do we, how do we remain faithful? How do we make sure we don't compromise? Because again, that's what will happen in the church is that the temptation will be just to compromise. Just, it's okay, just a little bit of this. Just a bit of that. It's just a small bit. It won't hurt. It won't harm. And then in the moments of compromise, that's where the danger comes. So how do we resist? How do we hold fast? Well, first of all, this story of Balaam and Balak is a helpful illustration for us. Because really the question is, who's won? Who's won the victory? And that's the message that this letter of Revelation shouts to us again and again. We've already been singing about this morning, that Jesus has won. He's the conqueror. He's the overcomer. And what happens in this story is Balak goes to Balaam and asks him to curse the Israelites. But then Balaam isn't able to. It's a wonderful little story. And the way that God stops him is God uses a donkey. (laughs) If you've not read the story, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian, that might sound weird. And it is weird. (laughs) God doesn't normally use donkeys or it's not just a donkey, it's a talking donkey. Right? It's like Shrek. This is very weird. No, no, who was the Shrek was the who was the donkey? Donkey was just called donkey. There we go. Anyway, sorry, I'm getting distracted. And what happens is that the uh, Balaam is trying to ride, travel on this donkey, and the donkey won't move. It stops because the donkey sees an angel in its path. And Balak, uh, Balaam hits the donkey three times and it won't move. And then it starts speaking to him. It's very weird. And then we come across this verse. It says, Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with the drawn sword in his hand. I wonder if it's the same sword that Jesus talks about in Revelation. And he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I've come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. You see, the story of Balaam and the Israelites is a story of whose, whose word will prevail. Will Balaam's curses prevail or will the word of God prevail? Who, who's able to deliver blessing and who's able to deliver the curse? And what we should find great comfort in this story is that God only needs a donkey to stop this evil. And most wonderfully, the people of Israel, they don't feature in this story. They're completely oblivious. They don't know what's going on. They don't know that this mortal threat This evil occultic power is trying to undermine them, is trying to curse them. They don't know. They're oblivious. God doesn't use them, he uses a donkey instead. You see, that's so often how God is at work in your life. It's all the time. There are threats coming 
against you that he turns away and we're not even aware of it. If I look back over my own life, I see lots of decisions which sometimes at the time have even appeared frustrating. I wanted that, I prayed that God would give me that job and the door was closed. Why did that happen? I prayed that I would get to move to that place and it didn't come off. Why? And at the time it can be frustrating. God, why are you not, why isn't this happening? And then later on we learn why. I don't know if you've had those moments where you suddenly think, oh, that's why that happened. God was, he was protecting me from a, a danger that I couldn't see. He was saving me from a trouble I didn't even know was there. It says in 1 Corinthians 10 that even the, even the temptations, even the little, those secret, quiet temptations that come against you, even those God is sovereign over. The same way he protects the Israelites in this story, he doesn't let temptation come to us more than we can bear. He knows us. He knows you and he treats you so kindly. And most of the time, we're wonderfully oblivious to his work. And even in those times where we do feel like we've, we've found ourselves in a season of, of suffering, of pain, maybe it's to do with our own sin, the mess we've made of things, or things that have happened to us. Again, the story of Balaam is a great encouragement because he takes Balaam's curses and turns them into blessings. You can read about in the story that three times, Balak says to Balaam, curse the Israelites, come on, do it. And he tries and he can't, and he ends up prophesying over them instead. These beautiful prophecies that you can read, which you read them and it sounds like they've been written in the Psalms. They're amazing. And they come from this evil occultic seer. It's horrible, but he ends up blessing them. <laughs> and God wants, and is and will do that in your life. We'll take curses and turn them into blessings for you again and again. You see, because he's, he's won the victory, he is, he's in charge, he's ruling over his creation. And there's an enemy that's flailing around, trying to cause damage, but ultimately Jesus has won. And he calls us to hold fast to him, but all the time he's holding fast to us. He's got his grip on us. His grace has you. And now it means what we're called to do is to repent, as it says here, which we get to live out this victory. It talks in 1 Corinthians about how when these idols come against us and try and corrupt us, when temptation comes, that we're to flee. And that's not, fleeing isn't, that's not defeat. It sounds like defeat language. To run away sounds like a failure, but it's not. It's a, it's a run of victory. 
That's what it is to repent, is to just turn and run, flee and run in the victory of Jesus. Run to him, his truth. See, because the sword that Jesus wields, if you see where it comes from, it's not the story of Balaam, the angel has a sword in his hand. For Jesus, the sword comes out of his mouth, which is a weird picture to try and get your head around. But what it's saying is that it's the word of God. It's his word, his truth, that will cut in to set you free. So when temptation comes, you can turn and flee, but you can flee even to this book and find hope. You can come to Jesus, the truth and the life, and find his help. See, because ultimately it's his, it's his victory that sets us free. The end of this passage finishes with saying to the one who conquers, I'll give some of the hidden manna. See, the provision that the idols offer is a fake, false provision. But the provision of Jesus, hidden manna, manna is the food the Israelites were given in the wilderness as the provision of God. See, God will meet your needs. And ultimately, he meets your needs in Jesus Christ. Talks about in John 6 of Jesus being the manna given for us, the bread of life. And not only that, but the intimacy that these idols offer, again, you'll find that only in Jesus. Just Look at the intimacy in this verse. I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And people who know much more about the Bible than I do argue over what, what, that, what the, the people in Pergamon, what they would have understood that to mean. What it probably meant was that in a court of law, to receive a white stone meant you were acquitted, meant you got to go free. If you've got a black stone, you're in trouble. But a white stone was, you're acquitted, you're free now. But not only that, it's this, your name's written on it. It's like when people get married and they exchange rings. And some people will have the name of their spouse or their partner you know, engraved on the ring. And only they, only they know it. <laughs> it's very intimate. And that's the gift that Jesus has for each one of you. The, ultimately, the gift of himself to be your intimacy, to be your provision. And today, the call for all of us is to repent, to come to Jesus, to come to the one who's conquered for us, to find our victory in him. I'm gonna read a couple of verses from the book of Isaiah. And then we're going to uh, share communion together and sing. This is from Isaiah 62. It says, The nation shall see your righteousness. This is God speaking to the, the people of God, the Israelites, but we can own this language as for us, his church. The nation shall see your righteousness, all the kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You should be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. 
You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. God, we thank you. That's wonderfully true this morning, that you rejoice over your bride, your people, your church, us, that we're no longer called forsaken or desolate, that you don't look at us and call us as broken, call us as failures, but you, instead you speak your delight over us, that you've given us a new name that's unique to us, to each one of us. And you want to write, not on a stone, but you want to write onto our hearts your love. And that's what, that's how we conquer. That's how we hold fast. That's how we overcome. By not getting lost in the mists of all the things around us that want to deceive us. But we fix our eyes on you. We follow you. And we can only do that through your strength, through your power. So I want to pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you just, would just come to everyone in the room. You just minister your grace to them. Just where there are people that know that they've been seeking provision elsewhere, trying to find their needs met elsewhere, trying to find intimacy elsewhere. We just pray that you would just gently come to each of us and just minister your grace, your love, your forgiveness your restoration I'm going to read a verse quickly from John 6 and then we'll take communion